This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Protests took place at airports around the country, including here in Denver this weekend, after President Trump signed an executive order to stop refugees from coming to the U.S. The order temporarily denies refugees from across the world and citizens of seven countries from entering the country and indefinitely bans Syrians. The president says the order is meant to protect the U.S. from potential terrorists, but it dims the hopes of people who have fled the Syrian war and are waiting in limbo in refugee camps. To get some perspective now from those camps, we're joined by Harrison Find of Lafayette. He's just returned from two weeks volunteering at a camp in Greece. Harrison, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. I'll ask you to describe what you found in the refugee camps in a moment. But first, let's explain your connection. You weren't active in refugee relief until just over a month ago when you heard a story on Colorado Matters about two volunteers from Fort Collins who talked about rescuing migrants from rafts in the Mediterranean Sea. It's men, women, children of all ages. You, you never know. One raft will be entirely adults, and then the next one you'll find that could have 20 to 25 kids on board, all under the age of five. I mean, we our youngest we had on this trip was about, uh, I believe, eight months old. How did you react to this story? Shocking. No other word to describe it. You know, I asked myself, at what point do you say enough is enough? At what point do you say what over there is is unacceptable. Um, It's incredible. And you ended up basically going there. (laughs) I mean, that seems like a rash decision. You hear something on the radio, and then the next minute you're on a plane over to Greece. Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to a couple managers over where I work, and next day I booked a ticket, hopped on over there. Have you done something like this before, or was this a a Yeah, absolutely not. I heard a little bit about the news over there, um, but I've never done this type of thing before. When you stepped on that plane, uh, what were your thoughts? <laughs> Nervous, beyond belief. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of news here talking about the refugees and about the camps over there. So I really had no idea what I was going to get myself into. You signed up with a Norwegian relief organization called A Drop in the Ocean, and they sent you to a refugee camp in northern Greece, not far from the Macedonian border. Can you paint a picture of that camp? What's it like? It was cold. It was dismal. Um, When I was there, the temperature was always below freezing. A couple of days with the wind chill, it was sub-zero. Wow. We were were joking in our hotels that a couple of us got a cold just by staying in a hotel. We were wrapped up in all our clothes. So you really can imagine what they were feeling like. And and where are these families living? Are they in tents or how are they So they were in tents last summer. However, they recently moved over to containers. And there are about how many people living in the in this camp? Around 600. And how many people live in each container? Yeah, it varies. Um, I met a 25-year-old mother without a husband and five children to a 19-year-old boy who um, traveled by himself over here. So it does fluctuate. It, it, what is the sanitation situation like? Is, is there water and, and, and bathrooms and things like that? Right. So there are porta-potties around. There are some communal water supplies. However... When I was there, just because of the temperatures, the the um, porta potties were frozen with human waste. It's so cold. Absolutely, and because of the cold, the communal water supplies were frozen, so forcing the, the refugees to live off of bottled water. What were the people like that you met in, in the camps? Hospitable. They didn't have a whole lot of food, not a whole lot of water. 
But almost every single day um, after I was working my eight hours or 10 hours, they would invite me over to their container to have tea, to have food. And that was, it was life-changing. Was there a a person you met there that, that had a, a specific impact on you? Yeah. The theme throughout the two weeks was I was shocked, uh, not knowing what was really happening over there. And I remember talking to this one um, Syrian from Aleppo, and he's telling me about his story of coming over here. And I asked him, you know, was it because of ISIS, um, the Assad regime, about the rebels, about the other military factions over there? And he sh- yelled at me saying, it wasn't those at all. It was the airstrikes, not only from the Russians and Iranians, which I knew about, but also from the Chinese and Americans. And I really took a step back to <laughs> to process all the information. You've mentioned a few times that you didn't know what was going on there. It, it, was there a disconnect between what you were reading, let's say, in news and hearing on, on radio than, than what you were seeing there? Absolutely. I have an adamant opinion that there's been a strong failure in U.S. media to to provide adequate and complete news over what is actually happening over there. Um, I can go on hours and hours about it, but we, we, we talk about um, President Trump and about his tweets and about these policies, but do we really talk about what's happening over on the other side of the world? While you were there, you say you have a, you've got a different picture. Uh, uh, we've seen a lot of, of children in this crisis. Can you tell us a bit about the children you met there? Uh, you took a picture of a small yeah. boy carrying a bag of food to his, his container. Right. Uh, that's on CPRnews.org. It looks pretty somber. Uh, do, do these children play? Are, are they in school? Right. So um, they are building a school on the refugee camp. But during times where it's, it's below freezing, um, wind chills obviously sub-zero, they're just hiding in their containers. There is a playground. Um, there is a soccer field. But during these times, there's no way they're going to be walking outside. And describe this picture. Uh, what was it like when you, when you snapped that photo? The camp is completely desolate. Everyone's hiding in their respective containers. But this one boy had a, a small bag full of fruit that we distributed to him. He didn't have a hat on. He didn't have gloves. He wore Crocs. And just imagine that picture of a little boy walking across the camp, bringing food over to his family. Besides the, the cold, did, did the camp feel safe to you? Did you feel all right over there? Yeah, absolutely. These refugees weren't weren't hostile. Um, over here, we we paint a picture that these these refugees are are fleeing a country, but not a lot of them are are, are good people, quote unquote. But they're hospitable. Um, we are completely safe over there. You are listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Harrison Find of Lafayette. He heard a story on Colorado Matters about the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean and immediately left for Greece, where he volunteered at a refugee camp whose residents are primarily Syrians fleeing war in their country. Um, Harrison, what are these people hoping for? Do they want asylum? Do they want to eventually go home? Right. Yeah, all of them are waiting for their asylum papers. They were there at least the individuals I spoke to, about 10 to 12 months. However, a lot of the times, just because of their occupation back home, they're not granted these these asylum papers. So they either go back to Turkey, or in some cases, they have to go back to Syria. The United States took in 12,500 Syrian refugees in 2016, but President Trump last week signed an executive order temporarily banning any more migrants from certain predominantly Muslim countries and indefinitely banning them from Syria. He says he wants to protect Americans from the threat of terrorists entering the country. Uh, What are your feelings about that now that you've been to these camps? 
I'm not shocked whatsoever. During his political campaign, he noted that he was going to be building up these borders. He was going to be stopping any Muslims from coming in. Um, I would I would suggest to Donald Trump to to look at history, to look at American history, to understand that we are in fact immigrants and refugees coming from different countries. But in October, Germany arrested a Syrian refugee who was plotting a terrorist attack. He was turned in by other refugees. Did you talk with people in a ref- in the camps about this? Uh, how do Syrians see this debate in the U.S. and in Europe um, between compassion for refugees, but also the need for national security? Not necessarily. You, you didn't mention you didn't talk that. That's not being talked. No. About. Um, only thing I was talking over there that that really involved with American policies is. When I told them that I was from America, the first word they would say is Donald Trump. Um, and you really have to, to really step back and, and take a look at that and understand that over there with, with ISIS and Wasad and other regimes, if they look at Americans and they see that these, these Americans are bombing our cities and for them to also ban us from the United States, that, that really painted the picture. You were with um, volunteers from around the world. Was their impression of these camps similar to yours, that maybe they weren't hearing what was happening in these camps in, in, let's say, their respective uh, news outlets? So all the refugees I was working with, or excuse me, volunteers who I was working with, they're all Europeans, Hmm. um, from Spain to England to, to Norway. And they had a better picture of what was happening over there. And that's because as Europeans they could see the refugees coming to their respective countries and to interact with them on a day-to-day basis. And they were shocked that an American was, was over there. You, you were inspired by a story on, on Colorado Public Radio. Um, you were saying people need to see this. If other people are inspired to work with refugees, is, is it hard to find a good opportunity to go there? And what advice can you give someone? The best resource is Google.com. <laughs> is, is Google.com. Um, I went over there and I looked at a couple organizations and I found this one, a drop in the ocean. I did a little bit of research and I went over there. Do you want to go back? Absolutely. Um, without a doubt. It did cost a little bit of money coming over there. It'd be great if I had some sponsors to take me back over there. But there are thousands of organizations over there to help these refugees, not only within the Syrian borders, but all across the Middle East, all across Africa. So there are opportunities, um, not only for myself, but other people to go over there. Harrison, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Harrison Find of Lafayette recently returned from volunteering at a refugee camp in northern Greece. Colorado's U.S. senators and representatives are split about the executive immigration order signed Friday by the president. Read their full statements at CPRnews.org. And, of course, we'll keep updating the story as we get more of them on the record. Just ahead, it's now legal for terminally ill Coloradans to end their lives with medication, but some hospitals are asking to opt out of the law. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's now legal for terminally ill Coloradans to end their lives with medication. But patients can't just walk into any hospital and get a prescription. In a moment, we'll report on how expensive, rather, the drugs can be in efforts to bring down the cost. But first, CPR health reporter John Daly is here to tell us about health care providers in Colorado that want to opt out of the new law entirely. John, welcome to the program. Hi, Nathan. How are you? 
So how widespread is this? Well, about a third of the state's 100 hospitals say they won't let their doctors participate in the new law. In some rural parts of the state, those are the only hospitals nearby, Centura, SCL Health, Southwest Health Systems. Uh, Those are a few, and many of them are doing it on religious grounds, especially Centura, SCL, Southwest, some of the others. The hospitals that are associated with the Catholic Church, which favors palliative and hospice care for terminally ill patients. Can they do that? Can they just opt out? Well, that's not totally clear, and it could be decided in court later on. These healthcare systems certainly believe the law allows them to opt out, but proponents of the new law, which Coloradans voted on in November, they say no. They should go back to the blue book around the proposition and see what the voters really intended, which is for there to be an individual conscience clause. Now that was that yeah, what was does that uh, mean? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, that was uh, Matt Whitaker. He's with the group uh, Compassion and Choices. He says the law gives individual physicians a choice about whether or not to participate, but he says whole hospitals and health systems can't stop a physician from prescribing a lethal medication dose unless a patient plans to use it on the premises. Otherwise, Whitaker says, according to the language of the law, health systems and facilities cannot opt out. But of course. The hospitals and the ones that are opting out disagree with his view of that. Why would it matter whether hospitals can opt out versus individual doctors? Well, proponents argue that voters overwhelmingly passed this law in November by a two-to-one margin, and they say the more systems and doctors that work for those systems that don't participate, the more this restricts access for patients. All right. What do the state regulators have to say about this? Well, not much. The health department referred us to the agency in charge of licensing physicians, the Division of Regulatory Agencies, and it declined to offer any comment or clarification. Well, what about any insurance providers? Are they opting out? Uh, That's a great question. I'm told it depends on the individual plan. And at this point, most of the Colorado plans are still working through that determination. What's the advice to patients right now? Well, there are a number of hospitals that say they will participate, and that includes Kaiser and UC Health, and others are opting out now and could opt in later. Others are not participating but are allowing their doctors to. So obviously a a, a pretty uh, complex landscape there. Keep in mind, based on the experience of other states that legalized this before Colorado, most patients will take the medication in their own home. Hospitals and doctors that aren't participating can refer a patient to a doctor that is. And with most patients, this process will start likely with a conversation with their own doctor. John, thanks so much. You bet. That's CPR's John Daly. Now, for hospitals that will let terminally ill patients end their lives with medication, there's still the question of what medications they'll use. Colorado's new aid and dying law doesn't specify what drug or drugs terminally ill patients could use to end their lives. Doctors in states like Washington and Oregon have experimented over the years with the most effective and least expensive options. Joining us is Janelle Alicia, who wrote an article about aid in dying drugs for Kaiser Health News. Alicia is based in Washington state. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, thanks for having me. Oregon was the first state to pass an aid and dying law in 1994. Washington was next in 2008. Initially, what drug or drugs did doctors in those states prescribe to patients? Uh, for for several years now, uh, doctors have relied on secanol, which is a really old sedative um, because it, it has been most effective and it was available and it was reasonably priced until recently. So what changed? 
Uh, well, in uh, February of 2015, um, Valiant Pharmaceuticals of Canada acquired uh, Secanol, and they abruptly doubled the price. So from uh, from about fifteen hundred dollars to more than three thousand. Had it, had private insurance been paying for the drugs up until then? Um, you know, the question of who pays for aid in dying drugs is variable. Um, federal programs like Medicare and the VA won't pay for it. Um, in some states, Medicaid will pay for it. For instance, in California and Oregon, um, the Medicaid program will pay for it. That's not true in Washington. And so far in Colorado, it's not clear as well. So why did the price go up? Um, well, the company says uh, that they had high cost to acquire the drug and and that they just had the right to um, make it as, as um, expensive as they chose to. Um, and so doctors uh, who, a- who assist these aid and dying patients uh, wanted to come up with an alternative to that high price drug. And so what alternative did they come up with? Um, so at first, uh, in uh, last year, in, well, in 2015, really, doctors in Washington state wanted to find a readily available, less expensive drug. And that, so they expend, experimented with this three-drug cocktail of phenobarbital, chloral hydrate, and morphine sulfate. And they used that on a couple dozen patients um, with some success. And that was only, cost only about $500. Um, but that drug turned out to be har- harsher than doctors had expected. So some patients who used the aid and dying drug um, had a, a significant burning when they took it. And so this last summer, the doctors decided to come up with a new four-drug compound um, that wouldn't have that harsh effect. And so that's a new cocktail that doctors are using now uh, in states around the country? Yes, yes. Yeah. So far, it sounds like uh, I checked with them last night, and it, uh, 59 people so far in the states where aid and dying is legal have used this new four-drug cocktail. Um, it's known as DDMP. It's diazepam, digoxin, morphine, and propanolol. So it, it isn't as harsh as, as the previous version? Right. It doesn't have that harsh burning effect that was uh, distressing to some patients who took it. So, so what, what does it do? Um, so the mixture, it puts patients to sleep first, and then it halts their heartbeat and their breathing and eventually uh, results in death. And they were looking for a drug that would be as easy to use and as tolerated by the patients as Secanol um, without the high price tag. Now, do insurance companies continue to pay for this medication? Um, some some do. It's you know it's really variable, and so patients need to check uh, with their um, insurance providers to see whether they'll pay for this drug or not. Now, what about Medicaid, Medicare, which is the federal program for older Americans, and Medicaid, the public insurance program for low income people? Do they typically pay for aid and dying drugs? Right. Medicare won't. Federal, for a federal program like Medicare and, for instance, the VA doesn't pay for these aid and dying drugs. Um, Medicaid in a couple of states um, will compensate patients for the cost. Um, it, in Washington state, it, they don't. And in Colorado, um, as of Friday, it still wasn't clear. What has Colorado done to determine which drugs will be used here since there seems to be some options? 
Um, You know, as far as I know, uh, Compassion and Choices was just making sure, and that's the advocacy group that has um, worked to expand aid and dying laws in all of these states. They have have, uh, contacted pharmacies in Colorado to ensure that they'll stock all of the components of this four-drug cocktail. They are pretty widely available, these separate drugs, um, so that they can be prescribed. Now, now, briefly, uh, could a patient say, I would like this this version or, or this version, or is it would it be, this is the cocktail that Colorado will use? Um, you know, uh, it's really determined with a, between a patient and his or her doctor. So um, that is really, you know, which drug is best. I mean, some patients still are using Secanol if they can get it and they can afford it because some doctors uh, think that Secanol provides the best results. Um, but, it, but it is, as we say, high-priced and can be um, uh, difficult to get. And so patients really do need to work with their doctors on the details of what drugs they're going to take. And it's something that Colorado Public Radio will continue to follow. Janelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Janelle Alicia is with Kaiser Health News. Coming up, a Colorado reporter joins us. She stars in a new play focused on the life of transgender women. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Eden Lane is used to firsts. When she began appearing on TV, including hosting her own show, In Focus, with Eden Lane and Colorado Public Television, it's believed that she became the first transgender journalist on mainstream television. Now she's part of another first, co-starring in the play Trans Scripts, which opened last week at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Trans Scripts is reportedly the first major American theater production featuring an all-transgender cast and a script completely written by transgender people. Eden joins us by phone from Cambridge. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks, Nathan. Transcript opened on Thursday night. What has the reaction been? Well, I'm, I'm delighted to tell you that all of the reviews were extremely positive. Um, but even more importantly, the audiences have been so supportive. They've been terribly interested and engaged. It's, it's been really rewarding to see that reaction. Were you were you worried that that may not have been the case? You know, any any piece of theater, you have to worry as a storyteller whether or not you've hit the mark and whether or not your audience will have joined with you and received the story in the way that you intended. So I think that's true for any theater in Denver. <laughs> is it surprising to you that this play is a first? Um, it's not really surprising to me that it's first. And, I, and I'll make a, a, a small correction in that it was... The playwright, Paul Lucas, did write the play. Uh-huh. What What is distinct about it is that all of the dialogue, all of the words that are spoken, are taken from interviews he conducted over a five-year period with over 70 transgender women across the world. So these are words of real women? Correct. And he has selected seven characters, seven women, seven subjects that he interviewed as a cross-section of those interviews. So their stories are the ones that you're seeing when you see this piece, and it's their words that all of the actors are speaking. Uh, I'm not sure there are productions in which the official program includes a glossary of terms like gender expression (laughs) or, or sex reassignment surgery. Is there a process that the audience has to go through to basically connect with this play? 
You know, uh, first and foremost, it's a piece of theater. Hmm. So I think the audience is able to just experience it as a piece of theater. But because the American Repertory Theater is part of Harvard University, they they don't they don't just take it for granted, and they use every chance they can to provide educational opportunities connected with the work that they're doing. So I think they do that sort of thing with all of their productions, depending on what the production might call for. And it seemed as though there would be some words that, terms that might be best to be defined in the program so that they don't have to spend a lot of time in the narrative trying to define what's being said. How did you become involved in this production? You know, it's it's kind of funny because um, Paul Lucas, the playwright, was also the producer of the production at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And it was a very different script then. It, it has really evolved and gone through a, an amazing transformation since then. But it was very successful, and it had received even um, an Amnesty International Award plus the Festival Award. So I became aware of it then, um, because the arts and theater are one of the beats that I cover. And when he returned to the United States, he was looking for other theaters where he could further develop the script. And we began communicating in that way because I was referring him to theaters in Colorado that might be a good fit for script development. But as they were casting for this production at the American Repertory Theater, they sent me the full script that was completely updated, and I thought it was just to enhance any coverage I might do of this production. And really, it was an invitation to read for one of the roles, which was a, a stunning surprise, but very delightful. Had you been? Have you been out of theater for, for a long time? More than I'm going to admit on the air, but yes, <laughs> a, a very long time. Before I moved to Colorado, I had uh, worked in New York in theater and dance. And as I came to Colorado and became a homemaker and a stay-at-home mom and then rejoined the workforce as a journalist, I had no aspirations to return to the theater in that way, even though I cover the theater. So it was it was an unexpected delight. Did you have to audition? Uh, I mean, how many people eventually read for all of the parts in this play? It was an extensive audition process. They They wanted to try to have as many transgender actors as possible playing these transgender women. So they spent many months ca- uh, with casting their... Uh, call nationwide. In fact, uh, it's an international cast. One of the cast members is here from London. So they were really committed to trying trying to find transgender actors. But first and foremost, they had to be actors. So it was a, a detailed process for them. And yes, I did have to audition. I auditioned from Colorado via Skype and videotape. And how long did it take you to get back into the swing of things, You know, moving from <laughs> reporting to being on the stage? You know, that's very funny because... Um, I I really expected it to be a very difficult process for me. But when we came to New York for the workshop back in October, that first morning in rehearsal when we finally broke for lunch after sitting around for the table read, the team is so creative and so talented and so committed to this process. The preparation was completely detailed that it allowed me to focus on the work, and very quickly I was able to feel as if the proverbial riding the bicycle kind of thing. I could feel those muscles coming back into play, and it became a very familiar process. Oh, this is how this works. I remember this. And it was really satisfying. Take us briefly into this play. Uh, what are the roles? What, what, what are people seeing when they go to this performance? There are seven very different women um, 
presented that it's it's mostly direct address, although there is interaction among the characters that developed through the the rehearsal process. And our director, Joe Bonney, who is who's not only a brilliant director, but a really great dramaturg, really helping um, Paul develop the play in that way and find those moments of connection between the, the characters. But it's mostly direct address to the audience, telling their stories. Many of the reviewers have compared it to Chorus Line, and it's a great analogy. Um, it's as if you're seeing those characters talk to you the same way the dancers in Chorus Line do, telling their stories, but it's all intercut rather than each person telling their complete story. And sometimes they're talking to one another. And we have women of a variety of ages. We have a, a very young character who began her transition at 13 years old, and now she's an adult and an activist. And we have a gynecologist who's 73 years old who began her transition in her 60s. So a full range of... of oh, absolutely. And the, the, the backgrounds of the women are very different as well. We have uh, someone from Australia. We have someone from England. We have a gynecologist who traveled the world from Africa and London and Australia. We have two, uh, a young woman from New York. The character I play is from Staten Island. And then another one from Virginia, I believe. And these these various backgrounds, these various education levels, these experiences really help to give you just a glimpse of the kinds of experiences that transgender stories can provide. But really, the, the best part is they're able to show you how much these transgender characters, these transgender women have in common with everybody in the audience, how similar their, their life experiences and desires really are. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Eden Lane. She's co-starring in the play Transcripts, which is reportedly the first major American theater production featuring an all-transgender cast. Uh, she's also a Colorado broadcast journalist herself. Uh, you mentioned you're, you're portraying the lives of, of these women. What about your life? Um, is your personal story maybe shown through some of these women? You know, a lot of a lot of the stories that are told in this production are familiar to me, just as they will be to any of the other women and some of the men in the audience, because there there are some kinds of life experiences and examination that one does as you pass through uh, certain milestones in your life that are similar to everyone. I would say, though, that there isn't a universal story. That That's actually one of the things that one of the characters focuses on. There's not a universal story. So my story, uh, living in Colorado, being a, a wife and mother and small business owner and reporter, is very different than the women that we're portraying in that way. The details are different, but some of the universal truths are the same. Well, let's. what were some of the details of your life here in Colorado, uh, maybe with some of the audience who are watching you on television, or maybe the industry that you're working, you were working in? Yeah. The, um, Colorado has been... Um, as if I have found my actual place on the earth. I mean, it is, it is so surprising to me. I didn't expect to love Colorado as much as I do or to want to stay permanently. But once I got there, it, it, it's so wonderful, as all of your listeners will know, because they probably are, are living there. But what was the big surprise is as I began working, you know, I, I'd spent my, our daughter's early life as a stay-at-home mom because that was the choice for our family. But when I returned to work and I began working on broadcasts on CPT-12 and then other broadcasts in our 
market. What I didn't realize is that there hadn't been um, a known transgender television reporter before. And that attention was a, a big surprise when um, a political article came out to talk about my background as a transgender person. It never occurred to me there hadn't been one. And there was some trepidation by some broadcasters, my then agent, um, news directors, about how would viewers receive a transgender reporter. But Coloradans have shown over the past 10 years that what they care about first is that you do the work of a reporter and that you try to tell the stories honestly and keep yourself out of the story as much as possible. And that's evidenced by the fact that in a, as we begin our 10th season when I return, our show is completely viewer-supported. Has there been a cost uh, to this? I understand at one point you, you lost your agent? I did lose my agent uh, when that... Uh, kerfuffle about my interview with then-Mayor John Hickenlooper came out um, and focused on my background as a transgender person. I lost my agent. It's been difficult to book some freelance assignments after you uh, search my name, and they, they, they feel that there might be some you know, resistance to a transgender television reporter. But really, viewers have shown that to be untrue as long as you do your job and you do your job well and you you realize you're providing a service to the viewers first. Are you are, are you happy now being a an, an actor again or being on the stage or will you go back to reporting you say you will or or is there kind of a a a, a tug going on there? Well, you know, it it has been an extremely rewarding and um delightful experience to be here at Harvard performing in this play at the American Repertory Theater, you know, a, a major American stage with their recent track record, it's, it's virtually um, a step away from Broadway, if you will. And, and that's been delightful, but I'm so homesick and I cannot wait to get home to Colorado and get back to work covering politics and community affairs and the arts in Colorado because that's my home. In a preview of the play, there's a video which we put on the Colorado Matters page at CPRnews.org in which you interview some of the other cast members and ask them about a phrase or a sentence they hope will resonate with the audience after they've seen the play. Yeah. <laughs> what would that sentence be for you? I, I think for me it would be one that's uh, spoken by my character where she says, um, this is a human experience and I'm very grateful for it. And it's not only about being happy or unhappy. It's about the journey. And she's very proud of herself. And and I think that's a delightful thing for anyone to be able to say about themselves. And I'm happy that I can say that about myself as well. Eden, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. Eden Lane is a Colorado journalist who is co-starring in the play Transcripts, the first production by a major American theater company that features an all-transgender cast. She joined us by phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the play is being staged. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The mechanical issues that plagued RTD's train to the plane last year are largely resolved, but the A-line is still dogged by another issue that has threatened to shut it down, crossing arms that don't work when they need to. 
RTD's waiver from the federal government to keep the trains rolling expires this week. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports. A train car from Denver International Airport rumbles toward Union Station. Its horn blares as it crosses Steel Street in North Denver. But the gate said about a dozen crossings aren't working correctly. So at each one of those crossings, contractors hold big stop signs as an extra safety measure every time a train goes by. They've been here since the train line opened last spring. RTD has gotten two 90-day waivers already to fix the problem, and now needs a third. The crossing arms are part of a new system called Positive Train Control. It uses wireless technology to prevent accidents. Federal law says all commuter lines must use it by next year. And RTD's A-Line to the airport and B-Line to Westminster are the first commuter trains in the country to have it built in rather than retrofitted. Well, I think what happened is uh, we are uh, discovering this is a very complicated system. That's Nate Curry, an RTD spokesman. It's a matter of fine-tuning this software to get it to where it needs to be as far as the timing goes with our federal regulators and getting into compliance with that. So it's been longer than uh, we initially expected, but, uh, you know, we're, we're pleased with the progress that we're making on it. That progress has been made by Denver Transit Partners. That's the contractor that built and operates the train. Here's company spokeswoman Nadia Garris. We are the pioneers of this brand new technology. You know, in, in five years, we're going to be a model for the country and for the world. The Federal Railroad Administration has kept a close eye on the project here. They wouldn't agree to an interview, but in a statement, an agency spokesperson says they'll work with both RTD and Denver Transit Partners until, quote, permanent functionality is achieved. Denver Transit Partners initially thought a fix would take just a few weeks, but Garris says they've learned a lot since then. It's hard to predict and give a schedule and a hard date, if you will, um, in terms of why it wasn't fixed a few weeks later or why it hasn't been fixed yet. Denver Transit Partners has paid for the flaggers at crossings and all other expenses related to the positive train control problem. RTD says taxpayers are off the hook. But RTD doesn't know yet how long the crossing arm problem will take to get fixed. And until it is, another new commuter train is on hold. The G, or Gold Line, will run from Union Station to Wheat Ridge. It was supposed to open last year, but it also will use positive train control, so it's stuck in limbo until the other lines are fixed. The G Line will stop in Old Town, Arvada, and that has Arvada Mayor Mark Williams watching anxiously. It's like Christmas got delayed. It's a situation where every time I see a news report talking about another day of uncertainty with the A-line of some problem that's cropped up or whatever, it just lets me know that it's pushing back our time frame for being able to open the gold line. Old Town restaurants and shop owners are waiting impatiently, but William says he's keeping his eye on the prize. Once it's finally working, you know, I think people will start to forget about the delays and and the frustration that went with that. RTD says the G-Line will open this year, but its spokesman Nate Curry says they're not exactly sure when, and Curry says they'll ask for as many federal waivers as they need to complete the project. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And you can see all our reporting on RTD and the train to the plane at cprnews.org. A new satellite built in Colorado promises to improve weather forecasting, and now it's sending back its first pictures. One shows the moon as it looks above the surface of the Earth. Another shows Earth's western hemisphere. Lockheed Martin built the GOES-16 satellite and will develop three more. My colleague Andrew Dukakis spoke with Tim Gasparini, head of Lockheed's weather satellite program right before the launch. When he referred to it as GOES-R, Gasparini explained how the satellite will help in forecasting severe weather. 
We just recently uh, went through Hurricane Matthew. And, um, you know, as you watch the television and you see the pictures of the hurricane as it's traveling up the East Coast, it looks kind of like stop-action photography as you see the the pictures that they take, which are typically once every 15 minutes or so. The GOES-R spacecraft has the capability to zoom in on a severe storm and take pictures every 30 seconds. And what that does for the meteorologists is it helps them to be able to predict the track of the storm better, as well as the intensification of the storm better. And does that mean that they perhaps could warn people to evacuate more quickly, and they'd know that others might not have to evacuate. They can. If you look at the costs of a hurricane um, as it hits the United States, there's obviously the damage costs, but there's also all of the costs of people having to evacuate and um, flee from the impending storm. And so what the Gozar spacecraft will do is it will um, hopefully narrow that storm track so that they can identify better where that storm will hit the United States, and it will help them to understand what the power or strength of the storm that they refer to as the category, so that people can be better prepared as that storm comes on shore. Does this have any impact on fire danger warnings or other weather situations that folks in Colorado might want to know about? It does. You know, here in Colorado, I don't worry too much about a hurricane, but I do worry about fire and I think about snowpack a lot. And the uh, the Gozar spacecraft can look at a spot on the earth and it can tell the moisture content of the clouds. It's also got a measurement tuned to fire so that it will better be able to both recognize and predict um, fires, which are very important for us here in the in the West. Um, it also has a, uh, a measurement band tuned to snowpack to where they can tell better where the snowpack is. And, you know, we don't think about snowpack a lot except for skiing, but the water from snowpack is substantially beneficial for our agriculture and other aspects of the economy. And from what I understand, this will mainly help the U.S. This doesn't really help in terms of severe weather predictions globally? It does not. The two weather satellites, the, the uh, one on the east and one on the west, basically span from the middle of the Atlantic to the middle of the Pacific and give a hemisphere, look at the hemisphere that the United States is in so that we can understand the severe weather in southern Canada, United States, North South America. But it does not look at Europe or, or Asia. So, a little bit of history now. How long have satellites been used in weather predictions? Satellites have been used since the, uh, the 1960s. So there's two types of weather satellites. One type is called a polar orbiting satellite that orbits the Earth across the poles of the Earth. And it basically passes over the same spot of the Earth roughly twice a day. And for severe weather, um, is not very um, helpful in predicting that storm. The geostationary weather satellites stay over one spot of the Earth continuously, and they provide a continuous monitoring of severe storms. And that's what goes are. Uh, that's the orbit that GOES-R goes into as a geostationary weather satellite. And the interesting thing about GOES-R is that the capabilities are substantially advanced from the uh, satellites that we have on orbit. In fact, in the uh, first six months of operation, um, the GOES-R satellite will return more data than all of our previous geostationary weather satellites combined. A recent article in the New York Times titled, Why Isn't the U.S. Better at Predicting Extreme Weather? criticized the National Weather Service for having outdated technology. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric 
atmospheric administration, or NOAA, in turn criticized the article, said the country's undergoing a revolution in this arena. Is the U.S. keeping current or is it behind? Well, with the uh, with the launch of the spacecraft, we will have um, a premier instrument suite on orbit to be able to make measurements. But once it gets to the ground, in addition to the spacecraft that NOAA is building, they're building an entire ground system to take the measurements off of the spacecraft and convert it into um, to pre- predictions here on the ground for the meteorologists to use. And there's um, there's a new instrument on board the uh, the Gozar spacecraft, the uh, geostationary lightning map which will uh, measure the total amount of lightning on the Earth. As, they've, as the research has shown that the intensification of lightning or the buildup of lightning can be a precursor to severe weather. And right now, we don't have the ability to measure all of the lightning that takes place. We can measure cloud to ground, but we cannot measure the lightning that takes place in the clouds. Mm-hmm. And the, the GLM instrument will be able to measure all of the lightning and um, you the, and the meteorologists will be able to use that in weather prediction. Tim, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Tim Gasparini runs the GOES weather program at Lockheed Martin's campus in Littleton. He's in charge of the new weather satellite, which launched in November, and spoke with Andrew Dukakis. The first photos from the satellite were released last week. Finally, Dragon Deer has been selected by Westward readers as Colorado's best blues rock band for two years running. The quartet will release its debut full-length album later this year, which was recorded with producer Mark Howard, who has worked with the likes of Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, and Tom Waits. For a preview, here's Won't Back Down. Back Down by Colorado band Dragon Deer. And that's our show for today. Thanks to Michael Hughes, Nell London, Andrew Dukakis, Anthony Cotton, and my director, Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, and our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. I'm Nathan Neville. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.